Hi everyone, Steve Murins here. I've been asked by a few listeners to provide a brief intro to summarize what we're going to be talking about in the podcast. Today's guest is Jenny Kwan, the Member of Parliament for Vancouver East and the NDP immigration critic. During the podcast, we talk about citizenship revocation, the cessation of refugee status and the automatic loss of permanent residence that results whether war resistors should be given the opportunity or ability to stay in Canada, and uh, Jenny Kwan's experience this summer on the Standing Committee of Citizenship and Immigration discussing vulnerable groups and the possible prioritization of certain refugee resettlement. Peter and I also discussed a recent federal court case clarifying restoration, and the three of us discussed Pokemon Go. Also, we have a website now, borderlines.ca, B-O-R-D-E-R-L-I-N-E-S dot C-A, where you can find our contact information, old podcasts, and links to some of the things that we discuss. I hope you enjoy the uh, today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of immigration, refugee, and citizenship law and policy. I'm Stephen Muritz. I'm uh, Peter Edelman, uh, and uh, we're very lucky to have with us today uh, Jenny Kwan, who's the immigration critic for the uh, national the NDP in uh, Ottawa, uh, a job you've just stepped into relatively recently, uh, and are relatively new to Ottawa as well. Since your first uh, your first session as a as an MP, uh, you have some background as a an MLA in Victoria. Although I, I imagine it's been a big difference in terms of going to Ottawa is that uh, how's the transition been going? Oh, there's no question that's a big difference. Uh, definitely the scope of being a member of parliament is a lot larger in terms of the issues. And uh, immigration, citizenship and refugees is a very active file at, at the moment. Um, I'm very lucky uh, to be the critic in this area. I'm deeply interested in it. I'm an immigrant myself, uh, formerly as a young girl, immigrated with my family here. And with that being said, over the successive governments, we've had policies that's been brought in place uh, that is just atrocious. Like I, I'm just astounded with what the Harper government has done. Uh, and uh, really, we need change. And uh, the Liberal government promised change. And so I'm here to hold them account to drive those changes. Okay. Well... That's one of the things we're hoping to talk talk about today are some of the major changes. I think one of the big promises uh, and that was pretty central to the election promises were the the issues around citizenship and the changes to Bill C-24. So we saw a bill presented in Parliament, uh, Bill C-6, uh, which has changed a number uh, or, or brought back uh, pushed back or pulled back from a number of the reforms that were in Bill C-24, uh, in particular with respect to the ability to revoke citizenship uh, to people who've committed certain types of offenses, uh, terrorism offenses, espionage, etc. Um, it's also shifted with respect to residency and some of the other uh, some other areas of the Citizenship Act. So we're hoping to talk a little bit about that. Um, so what, uh, in, in terms of the Citizenship Act, what do you see as the major uh, the major issues, let's maybe start with the positive parts of Bill C- C6 uh, in terms of the parts that you think are, uh, and I understand that the NDP was supporting uh, good portions of the bill, so maybe we can start by talking about the things that were good about the bill. Um, absolutely. Well, um, just to sort of, uh, by way of background, Bill C6 was an act to amend Bill C24. In fact, during the campaign, the uh, Liberals, the federal Liberals, and Justin Trudeau himself actually appeared before the ethnic community and the ethnic media and said that he would repeal Bill C24. Why did he say that? Because if 
effectively, Harper's Bill C-24 created two classes of citizens. And so not all Canadians are treated equally. If you're Canadian-born uh, Canadians, you're treated differently than those uh, who have to obtain citizenship uh, through other means, whether you're an immigrant or a refugee uh, obtaining citizenship. And so, um, you know, uh, that is a real issue. And so people had uh, raised that issue during the campaign. The Liberals said they would repeal the bill. Uh, they didn't. Uh, and then they brought in Bill C-6. But the thing about Bill C-6 that is positive is that it did address that central issue and it began to uh, erase, uh, I think, what the uh, Conservatives have done, and that is to treat Canadians with uh, different uh, approaches and so no longer uh, that there are two classes of Canadians, if you will. So that is to say those who committed certain uh, offences, uh, you would have your citizenship revoked versus those who are Canadian-born, that would not happen to you. So um, so that's positive, and we did support uh, the Bill C-6, actually. But in that process, though, what the government's missed in Bill C-6 is a whole variety of other things that they should have dealt with. Uh, so take, for example, the appeal process for people whose citizenship would be revoked. Right now, as it stands, you have more rights uh, as someone who receives a traffic ticket by running a red light or a, a, running a stop sign than with someone who's faced with their citizenship being revoked. And there's something really wrong with that. That due process has got to be fixed, uh, and we need to put the due process back and allow for uh, the appeal process to be uh, brought back in such a way for something as significant as losing your citizenship uh, to have basically your day in court uh, appropriately. So, um, so just uh, sorry, just a bit of context for listeners. What we uh, the previous process with respect to citizenship revocation prior to Bill C-24, what would be involved in taking away someone's citizenship was, first of all, a referral. You'd get a letter in the mail that would say, we're thinking of taking away your citizenship. Explain to us why you sh we shouldn't do that. And if the the person was going to contest going to having their citizenship revoked, you would have a proceeding in the federal court, and the federal court would decide whether or not the person, in fact, had misrepresented or committed fraud to obtain their citizenship in the first place, which under the previous legislation was the only way to lose one's citizenship. And then there was a third stage where the governor and council, uh, essentially the cabinet, would decide whether ultimately to revoke the citizenship. So it was a very big deal to take away citizenship. And Bill C-24 simplified that quite extremely and made it so that you would lose your citizenship. Essentially, an officer would send you a letter, say, explain to me why I should we shouldn't take away your citizenship. And you'd have 30 days to respond. After you made the response, the officer would then decide whether or not to take away your citizenship. And at that point, you would lose your citizenship. You could then fight in the federal court through a process of judicial review to try to convince the federal court that the decision was unfair or was unreasonable, uh, but you would be doing that from the position of not having citizenship. So, uh, And you couldn't introduce new evidence during that judicial review. And Correct. There's, and there's also no consideration for extenuating circumstances, so it doesn't really matter, for example, that uh, you, you know, you're now well settled into Canadian society, you might even have Canadian children, you're married, and all of those things that are very much part of life uh, would not be taken into consideration. And so, in, in terms of the, uh, the process that's being proposed in Bill C-6, have there been any changes to that process well, at all? It, 
In fact, the government got that all together and didn't do anything about it in Bill C-6. Uh, and so, um, and so hence, basically, as it stands right now in our system, people have less rights when they lose their citizenship than a person, uh, faced with a traffic fine. And, and that, that is just not right, uh, for something as serious as that. So I did propose, uh, a range of amendments, uh, with respect to that. And by the way, the Canadian Bar Association, the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, uh, for example, the Canadian Council for Refugees and many, many organizations, individual lawyers, uh, had showed up in Ottawa at committee to call for change and to say that this is not acceptable. This is not Canada and you need to restore the process. Uh, and so uh, the minister uh, heard, I think, uh, the issues. They said that they were going to take a look at all of this and committed, actually, that in the fall they would bring in the amendments that I had proposed with respect to this. Uh, the reason why my amendments weren't accepted uh, in the committee uh, when we were debating this is because it was deemed to be out of scope. So that is to say it was out of order because it was not talked about or referenced in Bill C-6. And so when you try to bring in a provision that's not talked about in that bill, uh, it is um, uh, not accepted. It's, it's, it's out of order. So, so that's, that's been part of the problem. So what are your amendments? Well, my amendments is to bring back a due process and to improve it. But to uh, not not just to restore it from where it was, but to improve the process. In fact, and there are efficiencies that we can find within the system. So, uh, for example, um, you know there are long wait times now. It's expensive for people to go to federal court, for example. So we can actually streamline some of that uh, with respect to that appeal process. Uh, with the current system, where some of these hearings are being heard. Uh, on uh, different cases, for example, with officers that are hearing cases, that they can actually bring in uh, the evidence and, and call for also for humanitarian and compassionate reasons and to consider uh, um, to consider extenuating circumstances uh, and to take those factors in play and to allow for an appeal system uh, through uh, through that. So would it still be the Governor and council, like would it still go to governor and council in the proposed system, or no? The proposed system is for it not to just to go to a governor in council because then that would only be one stream, and that's actually not very efficient either uh, in terms of dealing with that. So, um, so we're proposing uh, what we call, for lack of a better phrase, I guess, uh, the Carl uh, recommendations uh, because the various different committees showed up, uh, or sorry, uh, groups that showed up and offer a variety of different changes and we put it all together and the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers uh, really um, um, combined all the different suggestions uh, into one package uh, and, then, and then that package really enhanced what was before uh, and brought in new provisions if the government adopts this uh, in the fall uh, and, uh, and to allow for better due process, to allow for a more streamlined process and, uh, and I think also a more efficient process uh, for the applicants themselves as well. Yeah, and there was uh, another issue that uh, I listened to some of the SIMS hearings and an issue that I thought you uniquely touched upon was language testing for citizenship. And there's been a little bit of a discussion over reducing the language testing requirement for citizenship applicants from, I think it's 64 to 55 in Bill C-6. Um, and you had some comments at the citizenship or the SIMS hearings, and also I think in the media, I was wondering if you could 
comment on your thoughts on language testing for citizenship applicants? Yes, um, essentially there are two sets of uh, procedures that a person has got to go through in order to attain their citizenship. One is that you have to demonstrate your language to a level of proficiency uh, that is required. And in my view, the current system as it stands, that level of proficiency is overly high. To be honest with you, uh, a lot of the people would not be able to meet that level of proficiency. Uh, a lot of immigrants, I know my family, when we first came, we didn't speak English. And I'll tell you, uh, if that level of proficiency was required at the time when they, my parents, became citizens, they would have failed that test. And, uh, and, and a lot of immigrants, when they come, people are just trying to survive, put food on the table to support their families. So they don't have time to go and get the level of proficiency that is required uh, to pass the test. So, so I wanted uh, to address for the government to acknowledge the difficulties around that uh, and to allow for flexibility and to reduce the level of proficiency that they're requiring for uh, uh, to attain citizenship. Second, uh, related to that, is basically amounts to double testing. Uh, and that is that uh, when you te you're tested on your um, uh, on your uh, knowledge, uh, that test is done in English. And so for a lot of people, again, if English is your second language, there are a lot of technical terms that you may not be able to say or even understand just because they're very technical in nature. And so um, we used to have a system where for people uh, whose language uh, is a second language, uh, English is their second language, they would actually provide for translator on the uh, knowledge test. Uh, that is now being done away with. And so it amounts to double testing for people uh, whose English is a second language. So I ask for changes with respect to that as well. And uh, so how many, in your sense, you've talked about the where the, the citizenship reforms are going. Uh, do you think, I mean, it didn't pass before Parliament uh, uh, recessed for the summer. Um, do you have a sense of why that happened? Uh, well, it went through the House of Commons. It passed through the third reading for Bill C-6. So it's now before the Senate. And so the Senate, of course, is uh, breaking for the uh, summer holiday. And so they're not sitting, so they will not will not get through it in the summer. So I anticipate that that will happen in the fall when they resume on Bill C-6. I should certainly hope that it will. And I hope that the changes that the Liberal government brought in will pass. I mean, they were good changes. By and large, they were good changes. There were a few things that I was not happy about. By and large, they were good changes. But they did miss a whole bunch of other things that they need to address. We talked about due process with people whose citizenship is being revoked, for example. There's another issue uh, that which I find astounding that the government did not address in Bill C-6. That is is that if you're under investigation uh, for your citizenship uh, and your you're in that process, they could investigate you indefinitely. There's no timeline to restrict to say how long this investigation can go for, which to me is, is astounding that we would bring in a law as such uh, for people. We have, uh, you know, in other in other areas in criminal law, you have seven years in terms of your statutes of limitation, but here in immigration, you don't. If they're going to investigate you, you could literally die before you know whether or not they're going to pursue uh, that uh, uh, those allegations uh, or not. So that's not, to me, uh, appropriate. And so I think that needs to be changed as well. What Minister McCallum uh, said to me uh, and also at committee when I raised the issues uh, around amendments that's required, in particularly the issue around uh, due process uh, for the cessation or so for the um, uh, revocation of citizenship, uh, he did say that uh, they would uh, bring in new legislation 
uh, and that uh, I expect will happen in the fall uh, to fix the problem that the uh, Liberals had missed under Bill C-6. So you're, you expect there would be another citizenship, uh, um, more citizenship amendments to come in the fall, uh, along with what we understand will be some, uh, some substantive changes to the Immigration Refugee Protection Act as well uh, that sound, it sounds like are, are being proposed or, or are going to be proposed relatively soon? Well, I'm hoping that they would actually incorporate something into the bill to address the issue of cessation, and this is particularly for um, uh, refugees uh, who's come to Canada, and for some of them, they have traveled back to their country of origin. And in that process, what the Conservatives have done under a separate bill, Bill C-31, was to bring in a process to um, revoke, to allow uh, IRCC immigration to actually revoke uh, your citizenship, oh, sorry, uh, revoke your um, permanent resident status uh, and, uh, and and even your refugee status. And to me, um, that's quite something as well. This bill, Bill C-31, was brought in and it, ha- it is retroactive. So that is to say for a person who traveled back to their country of origin, at the time when they traveled, this law didn't exist. You had no idea that if you travel back to your uh, country of origin, that you were putting your status in jeopardy. And that's what the uh, conservatives have done. And it doesn't matter why you're traveling back, by the way, your country of origin situation might well have changed. Uh, and that doesn't matter either. The fact that you travel back, you're already uh, put yourself at risk. And often how people are flagged by immigration uh, is because you're applying for your citizenship and they flag you and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a whole uh you know a whole situation where you have uh, uh you're completely at risk so i'm hoping the government actually will do something to address that issue as well so just to provide some context for listeners uh, the who are less familiar with refugee issues the refugee status, when somebody obtains status as a protected person uh, within Canada or from outside of Canada, they're also eligible to, or often are eligible to get permanent resident status as well, but they're two different statuses. So you, you have two statuses, one being protected person status, the other being permanent resident status. And it used to be, cessation has always existed as part of refugee law, where you could lose your status as a refugee because you no longer needed protection. And up until 2012, you, by way of cessation, would lose your protected person status. But if you were also a permanent resident, you wouldn't lose your permanent resident status. And what's happened since uh, 2012 is that when you lose your status by way of cessation under four of the provisions, so there's five ways of losing it, under four of them, you automatically lose your permanent resident status at the same time. Um, and so that's the problem that uh, yeah. that, that you've been talking about. Now you to oh, back sorry. step even further. When we're talking about cessation, we're not talking about scenarios where people may have lied to get their status. That's a whole separate process called vacating of status or refugee status. Cessation means there's been a change in your country of, uh, as Peter was saying, a change in your country of origin, such that you may you can be thought to have either reavailed yourself uh, of the. Pre- of that country's protection, which is where in the citizenship context you apply the citizenship checklist to apply for citizenship, says you need a passport, you apply for a passport from your country, and they determine that you've re-availed yourself. The legislation that the Conservatives introduced was when cessation would apply and you no longer need refugee status, 
That would, in cases of where you were found to have reavailed yourself of their protection, such as by going on a trip to visit that sick family member or by applying for the passport, that you would automatically lose permanent resident status. And there were people who I think uh, had come even under Pinochet and claimed refugee status dozens and dozens of years ago, hadn't achieved their citizenship, may have gone back to Chile, you know, 20 years after they first came here, they ran a risk of losing their permanent residence. And it was controversial at the time. I know, Jenny, you have a private member's bill. Uh, I can't remember. It's Bill C-2... Bill C. They actually don't give you a number yet because it's a private member's bill. So it's C something, C something. Uh, but it's kind of just waiting. Okay. And so it, uh, I have it printed a little bit in front of me and it says uh, the bill is to amend the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act to reveal provisions related to inadmissibility and loss of status resulting from the cessation of refugee protection for permanent residents. And the bill itself is really, it's pretty short and it repeals both the fact that the cessation of refugee status will result in a loss of permanent resident status, and the further amendment that Bill C-31 had introduced, which was those people would also then be inadmissible to Canada. Um, so do you, do you suspect that this may be taken up by the government in their legislation? Uh, I'm really hoping that the government will do something around these cessation cases. I brought this to uh, both the minister's attention as well as to the uh, parliamentary secretary's position uh, uh, information, and um, I've raised this in the House of Commons uh, through a question period as well. We followed up with further debate uh, around this, and the, every indication from the government side seems to be that uh, they, you know, they uh, understand why I'm driving this issue and why the government needs to make the changes. Uh, when they were in government, so when they were in opposition, uh, when this uh, was brought before the House of Commons, by the way, they voted against it as well. And this law, Bill C-31 on cessation, effectively, in my view, creates two classes of permanent residents. Those who are able to travel back to their country of origin without any repercussions and those who could not. And so in this instance, if, you know, Trudeau have said, our prime minister have said, a Canadian's a Canadian's a Canadian. Permanent residence should be a permanent residence should be a permanent residence. People should not be treated and penalized, uh, in this way. And, 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 and why this is, this bill is so offensive to me, uh, or this session, uh, the cessation provisions are so offensive to me is that basically the Harper government brought in a law that's retroactive and they have no comprehension it appears to me, about the circumstances of each and every case. People travel back for all kinds of reasons. And it may well be that your country of origin where you left is no longer a threat. And there was, in fact, a case as such. Uh, and it related to a person who is a refugee and left because of Saddam Hussein's regime. Uh, and, of course, that is no more. He traveled back and visited and now he's being targeted because of that. And that, to me, is just absolutely absurd. And so I'm really hoping that the uh, Liberal government will understand that. They seem to indicate to me that uh, they are supportive of what I'm calling for. Uh, and I'm hoping that in the fall that they will fix it. And that is a second issue. I can't remember the name of the Federal Court of Appeal case, which says that 
in this whole process, a person's humanitarian and compassionate considerations aren't a factor that either the Immigration and Refugee Board or the Canada Border Services Agency is supposed to consider. Yeah, we had dealt with those in both the Bermudas. Uh, Bermudas was the case in the Federal Court of Appeal. Olvera had been decided in the Federal Court. Um, ultimately, uh, Miss Olvera was able to keep her permanent residence uh, as a result of uh, cessation in other circumstances, and so we didn't pursue the case in the Federal Court of Appeal. Um, but there were definitely some uh, um, serious concerns in both cases. Uh, Mr. Bermudez has three Canadian children. He uh, has a Canadian spouse. He's well established here and went back to his country in 2009 uh, for a very brief period of time. Um, in terms of the the critique from the Conservative government, and when it was passed originally, there was a lot of talk by Jason Kenney of bogus refugees. And so what he, the example he gave and repeated over and over again, was the person who gets their refugee status, gets their permanent residence, and two weeks later is on a flight back to Iran or is on a flight back to uh, their country. Why should we let those people stay here? Why, why should there not be a process um, to be able to cessate their status? Well, I mean, Jason Kenney, uh, I'm sorry, uh, raised this issue, and um, he's effectively trying to say that refugees are trying to cheat the system, and uh, and so therefore taking advantage of uh, Canadians uh, for accepting them as refugees. But I'll tell you this, first off, when refugees come into the country, do we actually say to them that when you accept our invitation for you to become a uh, a refugee in Canada, that you may never, ever travel back to your country of origin for any reason, whether that you have family members who've left behind that are dying, it doesn't matter. You are not allowed to go back. And if you do, you put your status in jeopardy. If we say that to people and then we follow up with it, so be it. But we don't say that to people. And people have extenuating circumstances why they need to travel back. We all have lives. We all are people. And those reasons need to be taken into consideration. And this, the, the conservative government did not do that. Not only did they not do that for current refugees, they went retroactively back to go after people. So people, even at the time of the travel, when they traveled back, they had no idea that they would put their uh, status in jeopardy. And that's what the conservatives have done. And to the point where, through a uh, freedom of information, we find out that uh, they were targeting people. They want to achieve 875 cases uh, each year by targeting people retroactively. And that, to me, uh, is absolutely astounding. And and that's what the conservative has done. And uh, the the liberals and Justin Trudeau said that they were different, that they were bringing real change to Canadians. And I certainly hope that they would take the cessation bill that I have uh, tabled as a private member's bill and adopt it as a government bill. I would love it. Nothing would make me more happy than the government to adopt that bill as a government bill and to proceed with it, because that is the Canadian way. And what Jason Kenney and what the Harper government had done is absolutely, uh, in my view, not who we are. Well, I hope that you're. Uh, I hope you're right, and uh, I have to say that uh, dealing with refugee communities is one of the issues that has definitely sown a lot of fear in established refugee communities and some communities that I didn't even know existed. Uh, that um, 
I was surprised to learn that there was an Actionese community in Vancouver, and the Actionese had come here during the Civil War in Indonesia. Uh, there were, I guess, a, a couple hundred uh, government-assisted refugees at the time. Um, the Civil War came to a rather abrupt end after the tsunami when entire swaths of the province were wiped out, and many of them traveled back afterwards, after there had been a peace accord, and in the many years since then. Um, and there's a lot of fear within those communities, because they're getting cessation letters, and they had been getting cessation letters. So um, that's just one of many communities that I have discovered through this program, uh, call it a program campaign which was rather unfortunate. So mm -hmm. I, I hope that you're right that this uh, that this does go ahead. Mm -hmm. And by the way, too, I mean, for refugees too, right? And it was always understood that when they travel and came here, uh, that because of the situation back home, uh, and, and that some of them may well travel back, right? Because one always hoped that for the home country, for the conflict and the issues that are happening there would get resolved. Uh, because moving people away from the home country was never the uh, only means or the even the preferred means uh, of supporting refugees. Because we want to try and sort of provide support to their home countries for those uh, conflicts and issues to be resolved. But now we also know reality is that oftentimes that doesn't happen. And so uh, by allowing for a stream for people to come to Canada as refugees uh, is to acknowledge that. And many of them do actually settle here. They have their roots here. They have families here. They're employed here. Uh, and they do all of those things and contribute to Canadian society. And that's fantastic. And that's what makes Canada, by the way, so great. We're a multicultural uh, country. We're built on that as a foundation. That is who we are. We are the faces of the world and refugees included. And we need to acknowledge their contributions to us. And yes, in the beginning, we support them because it was tough and they faced extreme traumas and hardships when they came. And once they've settled, they are part of our Canadian society. And to penalize them, to say that because they travel back for whatever reason that they had a visit, that we're going to penalize them, is simply un-Canadian. It is not the right thing to do. Uh, and I'm ashamed, frankly, of the Harper government for having done that. Uh, it's despicable, in my view, for, for, for having done that. It's an absurd law, and it needs to be repealed. And if the Liberal government says who they are, and they're going to bring real change to Canadians, I expect them to follow up and do uh, do that work. And that means they need to uh, adopt the changes uh, in my bill, adopt it as a government bill, or write their own bill. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not uh, obsessive or possessive in that way. But just bring in uh, a new set of laws to fix the situation because that cannot continue to exist. So, look forward to the fall. In the meantime, are there cases still being referred for cessation? Are they being actively pursued? Um, I mean, the, the cessation cases are being pursued. Uh, I haven't had any new cases come in recently. Um, I've had uh, a lot of people. There's still a lot of fear in the communities, though. I still do get a lot of people coming in to consult me. Can I go back to visit? Can I get, you know, how's this going to affect me? Can I apply for citizenship and declare my, my travels? Can I get a new key permanent resident card and declare my travels? Um, so it's, it's a serious concern, and it's an ongoing concern. Um, and active files are still going ahead. Yes, they are. And I just, um, I know of a case, for example, where the person at the time of travel, he actually went in to talk to citizenship and immigration and asked them if he could travel back. Uh, and then they said, yeah, as long as you have your PR card, you're good, go and do it. He did. 
And then now, a cessation case is brought against him. I mean, this is how absurd the situation is and is ongoing. So, I mean, the real question is this. We are receiving some 25,000 plus Syrian refugees. Are people at the time when they arrive and land in Canada, when they accept uh, the application, are we telling them that you can never, ever go back to visit your families ever again? Um, I don't think so, right? We're not doing that. And why would we tell them that? Exactly. I mean... And by the way, our charter, of course, have uh, freedoms and rights that are protected, and our right to um, be have mobility is a key thing, uh, and and that ought to that principle ought to extend to everyone, uh, including refugees who some may want to travel back to their country of origin for any reason. So I think we'll move on to uh, some uh, news items of interest or some some new items in the in the news. Uh, Actually, this is not necessarily a new item. This is an item that's been around for a while. So I was, we were going to talk a little bit about uh, Rodney Watson, uh, who is an Iraq war veteran who completed a year deployment in uh, Mosul, Iraq, uh, or Mosul, Iraq, uh, who's now living in uh, First United Church in Vancouver since September of 2009. So he's been there for seven years, almost seven years now. Mm-hmm. Um do you want to talk a little bit about Rodney's situation and what uh, I know that you're familiar with his case, and maybe we can uh, have you fill in the fill in the blanks here as to where he's what what's going on there, and why is he still in this uh, in sanctuary in the church? Absolutely, uh, Rodney Watson is actually a lovely man. Um, I met him at First United Church where he's seeking sanctuary. He is a war resister. He served, actually, he's a veteran. He served in the Iraq war. Uh, and then after his service, he was sent back. Uh, and, you know, when he was there the first round, uh, and he witnessed a whole range of different issues and he could not in good conscience go back to that war. So he refused and he came to Canada and to seek refuge in Canada. And, uh, he's been at the First United Church for close to seven years. Now, come September of this year, he would have been at the church for seven years. He's got a Canadian son uh, and uh, a son that he barely knows because he can't step out of uh, the front door of First United Church. Um, And the Iraq war, of course, uh, we now know that it is a war that is basically illegal. In fact, there was a recent report uh, that was uh, uh, issued uh, in the UK uh, that clearly established that the Iraq war uh, was really illegal, that action was taken uh, before all peaceful measures were exhausted, that the threat was actually uh, overly exaggerated and the risks overly exaggerated, uh, and so on. And so you have, here you have Rodney Watson, and by the way, I think there are about 25 war resisters remaining still from the Iraq war here in Canada, from the United States across the country and uh, in various different provinces. And what we need the federal government to do is to tell the courts that they will not pursue the war resisters, that there will be a pathway uh, for them to, to sit, to have citizenship here in Canada, to have status here in Canada. And I think uh, that needs to be done. The uh, Trudeau government, again, when they were in opposition, uh, Olivia Chow, my predecessor, uh, the NDP opposition critic, uh, at that time tabled two uh, motions in the House to call for uh, the government to allow for pathway uh, to war resistors. And uh, the liberals in opposition, including the prime minister, voted for that. Uh, since the election, uh, the prime minister had said that 
and and criticize the Harper government for lacking understanding and compassion in their dealings with war resisters. So I'm hoping that the government will show compassion and understanding with the war resisters that are here for people like Rodney Watson, who stood up on a principal stance, who showed enormous courage, in my view, for putting himself on the line here for doing what he believed in. Uh, and, uh, and, and really, by doing that, he's risking his own freedoms. Uh, and, and in that process, I think trying to, uh, fight for freedoms for other people. And so I'm hoping that the, uh, the Liberal government will take action. Minister John McCallum during the campaign said they would do something about this. Uh, and if they don't, uh, then you have, uh, effectively Canada will be contributing to criminalizing, uh, war resistors. And I think that is wrong. It is something that Parliament is going to, or the Department is going to have to do because uh, Canada's courts within the refugee context have pretty consistently found that um, general desertion or refusing to serve in the military does not constitute a convention ground for refugee status. Uh, for those you know, who like to follow case law, the Federal Court of Appeal decision is ATES and Canada 8. Uh, be the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration Canada. And so it's typically in the refugee setting only where the uh, refusal to serve in the military or to go off to war, typically where it pertains, where the consequence, jail or other punishment in the uh, military courts of the country, where the desertion pertains to conscription for a legitimate and lawful purpose that's conducted in a discriminatory way, or if the punishment for desertion is based in relation to an existing convention refugee ground, such as race, uh, sexual identity, political opinion. So it's going to be, especially in the case of American war resistors, something where in the overwhelming majority of cases, I would think, Parliament would have to intervene because the Immigration and Refugee Board is unlikely to find uh, that such people qualify for refugee status. Well, that's exactly the problem. And in fact, the Harper government brought in a bulletin, a special bulletin, Bulletin uh, 202, uh, that actually criminalized war resistors. So by virtue of that, people cannot apply for status, really, because they would be uh, deemed to be not have met the conditions. Uh, so, so that... So that needs to be rescinded. Uh, Bulletin 202 needs to be rescinded by the government. Uh, and then a pathway needs to be available for those who are here uh, seeking uh, Canadian citizenship. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm hoping that the government, in fact, will take action before September the 16th. Uh, and this is when the course is waiting for a signal from the federal government today on what they intend to do with uh, this group of war resistors. Do you see a limit at all to what you think? Um, like, should I mean, do we run the risk of creating a system whereby in countries where there is the draft, Israel, Russia, Taiwan, South Korea, that anyone who comes from those countries to Canada can claim permanent residence by saying that they don't want to be in the draft and that we create what could be a very big queue of people who just don't want to serve in their country's military as a pathway to permanent residence. Well, we can certainly take a look at uh, other cases, but right now we have uh, the um, war resistors from the U.S.-Iraq war, which has been declared, by the way, uh, I would say, a illegal war. Uh, and so we need to take action with respect to that. I would also say this uh, in terms of uh, the war resistors. 
uh, around it. Um, you know, Canada actually has had a huge tradition to which I'm very proud of, of accepting war resistors uh, and dodgers. Uh, the Vietnam War, by the way, at that time, uh, we accepted, uh, you, you know, at least 50,000 people. Some some say 100,000 if you include the dodgers. And so there were a lot of people to which we accepted, which, by the way, in British Columbia, we should be so proud of this. Uh, Dr. Michael Klein just recently received a Order of Canada recognition and uh he was a war resister you know jim Jim green also was jim green my uh former mentor the late jim green was a uh a a war resister and you know what uh in this province in this city he transformed a city he was such an enormous voice uh for those who are homeless who are marginalized in our community in fact i think he became one of the largest developers of non-profit housing uh in building housing to house those who, uh, who are homeless uh people who wouldn't otherwise have safe and secure affordable housing that was jim green a war resistor they contribute enormously to our communities we welcome them uh and they are a uh, part Part of uh, us, uh, you know, and so now we have a, a small group, 25 uh, of war resistors left here from the U.S.-Iraq war, uh, and their lives are in limbo. They do not know what's going to happen to them, uh, and they have no future unless if we address this. And uh, I'm calling on uh, Minister John McCallum and the Trudeau government to take action before September 16th. Well, so no, I'm glad that you were able to join us uh, this week. We've... Uh Surprisingly, Parliament's uh, youth or the Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration has actually been quite busy over the summer. Uh, normally, you don't sit during the summer, but you have been sitting over the summer. What's uh, what have you been studying? Uh, or do you want to just give a brief outline? I think we talked about it briefly in a previous podcast, but. Uh, um, yeah, we had a major issue uh, that was brought to us uh, at committee to which every member, uh, government and uh, the two opposition parties supported the motion to study this. And that is the vulnerable groups uh, that needs uh, immediate action and, and support uh, in, 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 in the global universe. And so um, we studied uh, amongst others, but the cities uh, who've been declared a, a genocide Uh, is happening against the Yazidis community. And that has been declared by both the UN and by the government as well, the federal government. Uh, And so uh, with that uh, backdrop, urgent action was needed uh, for government to do something. Uh, We know that there are thousands of uh, Yazidi women and girls who've been enslaved, who've been raped and and tortured, uh, and that are still very much at risk. Uh, some of them, even at the refugee camps, are still at risk. Uh, and so we wanted to look at uh, the vulnerable groups and to see what action can be taken immediately. Uh, so over the summer, we uh, came together with this emergency resolution. And uh, we heard from a whole variety of different witnesses uh, that gave such compelling and moving uh, testimonials uh, at the committee. Uh, in fact, uh, more specifically, there was a survivor, uh, a young woman uh, who escaped uh, um, and, and, and survived and came to Canada. Uh, and she told her story. Uh, Yesidi is a young woman. She told her story. And it was just heartbreaking, uh, not only 
you know, for every time for her to tell their story, she's reliving it, but also to know that there are people that are still in that situation right now. And basically, she is advocating for change in the global community, in Canada included. Uh, and so coming out of uh, that set of uh, um, uh, committee meetings, um, I wrote a letter to the minister uh, calling for basically five things that I think we can do over the summer uh, as emergency action. And one of them was to uh, work with organizations, uh, nonprofits on the ground who have already identified uh, the women uh, and the victims uh, of the genocide uh, and to provide a pathway for them to come to Canada immediately. That was point one. That was point one. I can go, yes, I <laughs> mean, there. Yes, and, and so the other four points, uh, we also know that other vulnerable groups include, for example, the LGBTQI community, and uh, in some countries, at least 63 of them, they declare it to be illegal uh, for you to be gay, uh, for example, and uh, and there are people who are just stuck in these situations, uh, and, putting, and their lives are at risk for no other reason other than for being who they are. And so I wanted the government to take action with respect to that, and we can actually move forward with a pilot project to to bring back a category of uh, application for people who in their own countries, in their source country, to make an application as a refugee. Because right now, as it stands, our refugee laws do not allow you to make application if your source country accepts you, right? So then they're not deemed to be uh, at risk in that way, with exception that for LGBTI community, they're exactly at risk. And so that source country application, I think, needs to be brought back as a pilot initiative uh, to uh, uh, provide a pathway of support uh, and safety uh, for the LGBTI communities. So that's the second uh, suggestion. The third suggestion that I made to the government uh, has to do with um, refugees in northern Iraq. Right now, we actually don't even have processing centers in northern Iraq, and people that are there are at extreme risk. Uh, even though they have been approved by the UNHCR, they cannot get to Canada. Even though they have uh, private sponsors all lined up here in Canada and ready to receive them, even though they are travel ready, they cannot leave northern Iraq. Why? Because Canada can't get anybody in there to uh, process their applications. And so I suggested some months ago now to the minister that why don't we use international agencies such as the UNHCR, such as the IOM, for example, to process these cases because they can get in and out. They've already have people on the ground uh, in, in northern Iraq. The government, uh, the minister responded to say he thought that was a great idea. Wonder why they hadn't thought about it so they wouldn't get onto it. Still hadn't happened. And people are still stuck there and their lives are still at risk. And for Vancouver in the Lower Mainland, I know there are at least 100 families who's already found sponsors uh, ready to receive them and they still can't get here. So I call on the government to actually do what other jurisdictions are doing. And that is to, uh, to allow for these families to come based on the UNHCR processing. And if they have done the processing and they've done the security checks and they've done all of that stuff, uh, for us to accept that and to allow for those families to come. And uh, other countries, by the way, is are doing that when they're faced with 
those kinds of situations where they can't easily get in because of security measures, amongst other things, and they can't do the processing on their own from the sponsoring country. That's what they do. And that's the best practice in terms of the global community's best practice. So I'm urging the government to take that action now. We don't have to wait until September or later on for the government to try to do something. But rather, uh, over the course of the summer, we can, in fact, let those families come when they are travel-ready. They have already been approved by the UNHCR, and we have uh, sponsors already to receive them. The, the, the fourth point uh, in terms of action from the government, um, what I wanted the, the government to do uh, on this question around source country, there are a whole great many other uh, vulnerable groups in different places uh, that cannot make application here because they cannot make application from their source country uh, in that sense, right? So so that class we used to, by the way, had the source country class in place. Now, there were problems with it. I get that. Uh, and so the government, uh, the Harper government did away with it. Uh, and supposedly, the uh, Section 25 under humanitarian compassionate uh, um, uh, section that was supposed to replace the source country class, with the exception that it didn't do it very well. And so, uh, so now we have a situation where you have a number of different people, vulnerable groups in different countries where they can't access and come to the country because of that uh, limitation. So I'm asking for us to study this issue. Uh, and to look at what the problems were more clearly under the source country class when it was in place and to work with the government officials uh, in, in, in identifying the problems and then understanding the replacement and where the deficiencies are and to come up with a new source country class to address this problem. Uh, I think that, uh, I think that's a worthwhile project uh, for us to do. And again, uh, you know, for Canada to say that we are different from the previous government, that we will engage uh, in such a way that will, I think, reclaim our space in the global community uh, of showing the kind of compassion that Canadians are all about. Uh, so that's another uh, recommendation that I made uh, to the government uh, with respect to my letter. And the last but not least uh, action um, dealt with, um, oh my gosh, what was the last thing? Sorry. Okay, let me just regroup here. Uh, the Yazidis issue uh, and the issue around Northern Iraq, uh, LGBTQI, uh, and the study, and the fourth one. It is fourth. Sorry, the fifth one. There's one more. Uh, let me let me just uh, think for a minute. So the fifth issue is around um, humanitarian aid. At the committee, it was quite something, and we heard uh, from witnesses who came to present to us to tell us that the humanitarian aid are actually not reaching uh, the people who are in greatest need because of issues around corruption uh, and discrimination, amongst other things. And their ask was a very simple ask. Basically, they're asking for the aid to be distributed by a reputable organization here from uh, from a team from Canada. So, for example, Red Cross uh, would be able to do that, uh, to actually distribute it and make sure that that aid go to the people who are in greatest need. And it's, uh, it's you know, and what are they asking for? Um, basic provisions uh, such as uh, oil, flour, and rice. Um, you know, so not anything extravagant, but something to provide uh, sustenance, if you will, 
um, for the people in these camps and who are just absolutely starving. Um, the other uh, uh, example that they gave would be that for some families where they're able to go and make their own purchases for cash donations to be made available to them, $200 would mean a world of difference uh, for these refugees and that they would then be able to buy clothes for their children, for example, uh, who's been in the same clothes in the camp for more than a year, for example. So these are just very basic things that they're asking for. Uh, and there are teams, nonprofits on the ground who's doing this work, by the way, uh, in, uh, in, in these countries, uh, in Syria and amongst the other places, uh, and they can work with our international teams. And, uh, and I'm really hoping that the government will uh, respond to that. The government, by the way, and kudos, uh, for the Canadian government, and I'm proud of us for doing that. We have just, uh, by the way, increased our, uh, humanitarian aid in the international community. There was an announcement of $150 million with respect to that. So we can take some of those resources and actually direct it in such a way to make sure that it reaches the people uh, and uh, and that are in greatest need and that the issues around corruption, discrimination, and what have you uh, does not run interference. We talked about it uh, last week, this issue of prioritizing certain refugee claimants or resettled refugees over others and how complicated an issue it was. I still don't know where I fall on it. As I read the transcripts of different witnesses opining one way or the other at Sims, I find myself reading somebody who said that we shouldn't prioritize groups and think, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And then the next witness would give the complete opposite opinion, and I think that also makes sense. Um, do you do you have you formed after all, all those hearings an opinion one way or the other? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, people have uh, compelling reasons to advance the position that they have brought to uh, the committee. And I would say, on the whole, uh, I would say all refugees are the same, and we need to acknowledge that the, by virtue of the fact that they're refugees and they're seeking asylum is because their lives are at extreme risk. There's no question. Uh, and, and, and that is uh, something that I acknowledge and, and absolutely accept. In this instance, why I'm calling for um, certain provisions to be taken uh, more immediately well, uh, in the case where there is an acknowledged genocide, I think it puts it in a different realm. You have a situation where a community of people, for whatever reason, and in this instance it happens to be religious beliefs, it could be for any other reason, right, that you you as a, as a community um, are under such target that your race would be exterminated. Really, if action wasn't taken, uh, this is the intent behind the genocide, right? So I think that calls for extreme action, and that, I think, is sufficient for us to declare that we need to prioritize this group because there is a genocide going on. And I fully accept that and would advocate in, uh, in moving forward for the government to move forward with respect to that. The other uh, group that I have sort of advanced uh, are the LGBTI community. These are individuals... Uh, who are criminalized in their own country for being who they are. And if they're outed, uh, they will be uh, in the minimum jailed if not killed. Um, people have told me stories, uh, the Rainbow Refugee folks who've done tremendous work around this uh, in our community know of situations where people have been stoned to death because they are gay. This is happening. And that, to me, puts them again in a different realm not to minimize the urgency for all the other refugees and the importance of that, absolutely not, but that puts them in a different realm when they're at that level of risk. And when people make an application, by the way, when you're LGBTI 
you're a LGBTI community member and you make an application, they are so worried that if somehow they're outed, that they'd be dead before the application is even processed. And those delays in the application of processing, they're at extreme risk. There are some situations where people in their home country, where they've been outed because they made an application, they flee to another country and it's just as bad. And they're waiting there, trying to hope, hoping that nobody will know that they're there and that somehow they can just manage and get the applications through without being assaulted in a major way or losing their lives. That, to me, puts them also in a different realm. And so uh, that's why I'm calling for a pilot project with respect to the LGBTI community to see how this works and how we can address these issues uh, more appropriately. But in the case of a genocide for any community, I think that we need to do what uh, 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 what we can uh, immediately. And Canada, by the way, is also signed on to the right to protect uh, as well in the global universe. Uh, and that calls for action. And, and we can't wait. We'll move on to uh, a case uh, turning from refugees to general status in Canada. It was a case that I know in our office, as soon as it was released, caused a fair amount of um, I guess frustration as the federal court answered a question that has been left silent for a while, but I think people were hoping for a different result, and that involves whether the Canada Border Services Agency can remove people uh, during the restoration period and after they have filed a restoration application. So before I explain that a little bit, I'll just give the case name. Um, I'm not. It's. Drago and Canada Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness. The spelling is O-U-E-D-R-A-O-G-O. And the neutral citation is 2016 FC 810. Um, and so when somebody is in Canada on a work permit, a study permit, or with visitor status, and they forget to extend their status prior to expiring, they are then without status. The Immigration and Refugee Protection Regulations provide that if somebody applies within 90 days to restore their status, that Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada will restore their status. So there's what's often colloquially called a 90-day grace period. And people have referred to it as a 90-day grace period, even though the question of whether somebody can be removed during that time has never actually been resolved by the courts. So in this decision, Madam Justice McVeigh weighed in for the first time on the issue. The case actually involves a high school student who forgot to apply to extend their status in Canada after graduating from high school here, was scheduled to start at Langara, and was detained at a traffic stop and issued a removal order. And uh, she appealed to the, or she filed a judicial review with the federal court, the issue before the court was whether during this 90-day period the Canada Border Services Agency can remove people, and uh, Madam Justice McVeigh said that they can. And in reaching that decision, she also found that even the filing of a restoration application does not prevent the Canada Border Services Agency from removing people. So in response to the submission that uh, you know, immigration, the immigration law says that people have 90 days to apply to restore their status. It would be seemingly contrary to the purpose of that provision to deport people or to issue people exclusion orders during that time. Uh, the justice said that this interpretation would have the effect of automatically extending the time 
for which a temporary resident is authorized to remain in Canada by 90 days, and that cannot be what Parliament intended. And I know that this decision has taken a lot of lawyers by surprise, who have always considered there to be that 90-day grace period, and in some cases would advise people to not necessarily even apply right away to try to buy time for, say, in the foreign worker context, an employer to get a labor market impact assessment, this would immediately cast doubt on that type of advice and even whether somebody who is in Canada without status, at a minimum, they need to be told that just because they file for restoration doesn't mean they're going to not be removed from Canada during that period. I guess I'm surprised that a lot of lawyers are surprised by this, right? because you need to spend a lot more time with the CBSA. To, uh, but for me, it's it, it's actually not a surprise because what uh, what the applicant did in this case was very different than. And there's an old case called You that was the basis upon which this understanding had always existed. And You and in that case, that's 2005, where they said that somebody who has filed restoration can't be said to have been breach of the act and therefore couldn't be. Right, but you look at the difference between the two cases. So what Udrago does is he gets picked up, he goes in, he gets told by CBSA, they find him as an overstay, and then he runs off and files a restoration application. That's exactly the way CBSA has been dealing with this in this way for years, right? If you get caught before you've filed your restoration application they are going to proceed with the exclusion order. You don't get to run off and, and file your restoration. It's not a 90-day grace window. It's not a 90-day ex- uh, implied extension on your status. What Miss Yu did, and if you look back at the Yu case, was there was a 90-day grace within the 90-day period. Right at the beginning of the 90-day period, he or she, I forget if it was a, a she, but I think it was a she, went off and applied for the restoration of status. And then two months later, CBSA, she comes to the attention of CBSA, and CBSA is then told by the federal court, well, you can't go after somebody after they've applied for restoration of status well within the time frame. And in my experience, with uh, if you apply even right at the end of the 90-day grace period, so if you're right at the end of the restoration status, and then two months afterwards... CBSA, you come to the attention of CBSA, they don't pursue exclusion orders at that time. What what we find in this case, and I think it's the same advice that we have uh, in any event, is that if you apply within the 90-day grace period uh, and you, you apply before you come to CBSA's attention, then there will be a grace or, or in general, they will exercise their discretion not to pursue. And arguably, you says they can't pursue. Uh, a uh, an exclusion order because the whole point of having a restoration provision within the act. That being said, it's not a guarantee and it's not the same as implied status if you apply when you're supposed to. And the safest thing is to make your application before your status expires and then you get implied status. I think my problem in part stems from the fact that the IRC, when they refuse a temporary resident extension application... <laughs> And there's some inconsistency on this, but I would say about 90% of their letters say, you know, your application for a work permit has been refused. You have 90 days to apply to restore your status. They don't say anything in there. Oh, and by the way, we may remove you during this time. And I think, I think those letters gave rise to this understanding. And if I got a letter like that, I would think, oh, okay, I have 90 days to apply to restore my status. It says I can't work, but 
surely if they're giving me 90 days to restore my status or apply to restore my status, they're not going to remove me during that time. And I find it like the whole notion that we would operate, that they can operate on parallel streams. I think that the laws need to be interpreted in a matter that assumes that the Canada Border Services Agency, especially once exit controls come in, will immediately be able to know when people have overstayed and act. And the interpretation that they can operate in parallel streams kind of assumes that the Canada Border Services Agency can't track overstays and won't find overstays. Well, I mean, I, I in the end, the law has been written the way it has. It has a it, it has a restoration period which is different than implied status, and and ultimately, implied status and restoration function differently. Uh, the practice of not going after people once they've applied for restoration within that period, I think, is is consistent with the act in the sense of saying, look, you've got this this provision within the act, and that's what the court said in you, is that you you have this provision within the act for it to be meaningful. You Once people have applied for restoration, if they've done it within the period, then you shouldn't go after them. The yeah, idea that you that wait... does get qualified in Odrigal. Well, what, what Odrigal... I mean, my, my reading of Odrigal, and it's, I think it's limited to the facts in Odrigal, is that you can't wait until you come to the attention of CBSA and then run off and do a restoration application and hope that they're going to leave you alone. And that's always been my advice to clients. Yeah, I mean, I would now, as a result of this case, go further and say, don't assume that the filing of the restoration means that they can't still remove you. It's a factor that they have to consider, but it's not preventative. Unless this, until there's further clarification on the issue from the federal court. All right. In the the last case we want to talk about this morning, the uh, the BC uh, Supreme Court made a rather uh, unexpected decision, uh, staying the proceedings against in the Nuttall case, which was the uh, legislature bombing case, finding that there had been entrapment. Uh, and this is the the terror the terrorism case. There had been a long investigation by the police against two. Uh, it sounds like uh, drug addicted, mentally ill um, defendants who uh, were pushed into a conspiracy uh, based on the court findings in any event. Uh, the the last few paragraphs are quite uh, um, damning of the of the police investigation in this case. The um, Although there's no finding of bad faith, uh, the, the court uh, definitely finds that the actions of the police were what created this uh, supposed terrorism conspiracy in the first place and ultimately stayed the charges, which is a uh, rather drastic remedy from the court's perspective. Um, it's also an interesting case in the context of a lot of civil rights uh, groups in the United States alleging that a lot of the investigations by the FBI and other uh, organizations or police uh, or authorities in the United States um, were along similar lines, and there have been similar allegations in the United States and elsewhere with respect to these types of investigations. So we're hoping to, uh, uh, maybe we'll be able to talk about this a little bit with Marilyn Sanford, who was counsel, counsel on this case. Uh, we're hoping that she's coming to join us uh, soon on the podcast. She was going to come and talk with us about uh, border searches, uh, but uh, at this point we'll hopefully be able to, to have a chat. We'll add this to the list of things to talk with her. So uh, not, did we have anything else, or is that... Uh, Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go, go ahead. Well, you, you, you got yeah, it. This is your article. It was my article. <laughs> well, the so there was a uh, as a last uh, um, 
rather, and I would say entertaining only because, uh, a, a lot of the, uh, the kids, for those of you who have kids, are already familiar with Pokemon Go and are, are out there trying to catch, uh. I organized a Pokemon Go bachelor party. Not like where we replicated it. We actually went into gold. The person whose party it was wanted a po- wanted to play Pokemon Go, and I had none of that. So we went into Golden Years National Park where there's no reception. We had hid some Pokemon dolls in trees, gave them lacrosse balls that were painted the colors, and he had to lob them at the trees. So it's not just kids. And did you put any of the Pokemon on the other side of the border? No, but uh, and that's what happened here. But had I no, because I had that hadn't even crossed my way. <laughs> so I guess a couple of uh, Pokemon players were uh, were quite actively chasing. I, I would expect, I would hope, a very ra- rare Pokemon that was uh, worth catching because uh, they <laughs> so they crossed the uh, they crossed the border to uh, to catch the Pokemon. And so for for all of you uh, out there in in the uh, augmented reality, it uh, might be worthwhile to uh, augment your reality with uh, some of the lines that. Uh, still remain relevant in the uh, in the actual world in terms of the uh, the the lines in the sand, so to speak, that one uh, might not want to cross without going to a border crossing. It'll be interesting during question period when people are on their phones to be wondering, like, what motion are their thumbs making? Like, are they playing Pokemon Go right now? Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, it's become a craze, and I've got kids, so they're obsessed with me with it, and they bugged me for days and days and days until finally I gave in. And uh, got this Pokemon Go business uh, going for them. I have to upgrade my daughter's phone. Good grief. And her phone was really only meant to be a uh, safety net so that I can locate her, a 13-year-old teenager, so I can find where she is. But in any event, uh, enough about my problems. But Pokemon Go, i got to tell you this. People are obsessed with it, adult children alike. Uh, and I took my kids to Stanley Park. Apparently, if you are crazy about Pokemon, that's the place to go because there's water Pokemons and forest Pokemons and what have you. It is all over Stanley Park. And um, but one thing that's interesting that I wonder how this is going to play out. As we know, uh, you know, smartphones, people are busy texting and doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you're not allowed to drive, of course, uh, texting and so on. That's already been a, a law that's been... Uh, made around distracted driving. There are issues around distracted pedestrians. And so with Pokemon Go, so hot uh, with people already, people are just busy talking and texting all the time, walking into trees and, and cars and what have you. Uh, what will happen with Pokemon Go? I wonder how this is going to play out. And I think it's going to prompt some very potentially legislative action uh, with respect to restricting uh, pedestrians uh, in their use of uh, smartphones. Well, let's look forward to the uh, Pokemon Restriction Act. Hey everyone, Steve Murins here again. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Once again, you can find a link to this podcast, a link to all the cases referenced, as well as previous podcasts at borderlines.ca. That's B-O-R-D-E-R-L-I-N-E-S dot C-A. Thanks for listening today.